Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Let's get at the story. London Police Service will engage in a news conference tomorrow concerning sexual assault charges against five members of the 2018 Team Canada Juniors. How is this case likely to move forward through the court phase? Does five defendants make the case or cases more difficult? Will the extended time period between the alleged assaults and the actions of Hockey Canada and the London Police Service complicate things for either the prosecution or the defense or both? We're glad to have back with us Jacob Jessen, law firm of Rottenberg, Shidlowski and Jessen in Toronto. He is, uh, has a great deal of experience with sexual assault cases. Jake, thank you for coming back. Good to talk to you. Thank you. You too, Roy. So what happens uh, tomorrow? You know, the London Police Service will have the news conference. I think we can predict what likely will take place then. But what happens after that news conference? What's, how does the sequence begin? First things first, tomorrow, there, there, it sounds like there's going to be a, an initial court date and, you know, a lot of... Uh, people are speculating about what that'll mean, but what that really is, is just an administrative date. Uh, I'm sure the players will not be present. Their lawyers will appear most likely on Zoom, uh, really to just indicate to the court that they have counsel, that they're aware that, uh, of the charges that are being, uh, that have been laid against them, and then to set uh, an- another date sometime in the future. These administrative court dates are really just placeholders. The real work happens outside of the court dates. The initial step being the Crown Attorney will prepare all of the evidence that they have that the police have gathered uh, and prepare the packages of disclosure to provide to all the various lawyers that have been uh, lined up and retained in this matter. Okay, so when you look at this particular case, you look at five individuals who've been charged with sexual assault. Do you expect it's going to be trial by judge or trial by judge and jury or depending on the individuals, perhaps a combination of the two? Well, so uh, if they're charged together, one of the charges uh, that I believe Mr. McLeod is facing is gang sexual assault, which avails himself uh, or allows him to avail himself of a preliminary inquiry uh, and then uh, to proceed from there uh, to superior court. I expect it will be uh, trial by judge and jury. That's usually how things uh, in this, these types of cases are at least are chosen at the outset. You won't hear about that for some time, though. That kind of decision comes later on down the road. Uh, the first sort of initial steps of the case, getting disclosure, reviewing that, speaking to the Crown Attorney. You know, there's a lot of uh, sort of uh, work that happens outside of the courtroom uh, while these administrative things are, are going on first uh, before those kinds of decisions are made uh, with uh, the lawyers and their clients. But as long as one client, as long as one uh, accused person chooses uh, judge and jury, then the rest of them will have to go along with that. Okay. So of all the things that will be happening outside the courtroom prior to a trial starting, what's the most significant? Well, really, the, the really the issue is here is it's been such a long time since these happened. So there's going to be a real critical analysis of all of the disclosure and the evidence. Uh, what have the police gathered? There's this open question that's on everybody's mind, which is what changed? Uh, there was a police investigation Included back, I think, in February 2019, charges were not laid at that time. Uh, the investigation was closed. So why now? Why, why all of a sudden uh, have things changed? Have the London police decided to uh, bring these charges forward at this time? And I, I, that's an open question. I think people are wondering, and, and we're hoping that we'll, you know, we might hear something from the police about that uh, tomorrow or in the coming days. But I expect there'll be some information in the disclosure for the lawyers to parse through as to, you know, what was the additional information that changed things. Um, and so that's going to be a significant part of the case, I think. Yeah, Jake, have you run into this sort of situation before with a police service closing a case and then reopening and under similar circumstances in a sexual assault um, situation? It's, it's pretty rare. I, frankly, most of the time when police 
um, officers get a complaint of sexual assault, they, they rarely close the investigation uh, at the outset. They're usually more likely to lay a charge and allow the Crown Attorney to do that analysis and decide whether or not there's reasonable prospect of conviction or whether it's in the public interest to proceed. So I think it's pretty rare that they close uh, the, the investigation back in 2019. Um, we're not sure why that is. We're hoping that that will come out, obviously. Uh, it's a big question for everybody, um, but I'd say that that's pretty rare. It, on the rare occasion in general, not just necessarily with sexual assault cases, yes, police can reopen an investigation if there's new information, new evidence that comes to light, um, or perhaps a second look at uh, the same you know, the same information causes someone to rethink things, you know, and decide that, hmm, we, we really didn't analyze this properly the first time. So, Jake, uh, let's get to this question. Do, uh, so, so, so what happens, all of the players, the five of them, have pled not guilty. What happens if one or more of the charged players completely or partially changes their plea? And does that happen with any degree of regularity? Yeah, so, so first of all, so none of them have actually entered a plea of any sort. Um, what they've actually uh, done is, that through their lawyers, they've issued statements, which is pretty standard crisis management technique, okay. uh, indicating that they are going to plead not guilty down the road. And, yeah, and so, my mistake, I, I misstated process, that. Well, it's, it's fine. It's actually important to distinguish because it's part of this process that I was talking about before the break in terms of the initial steps will be discussions with the Crown Attorney uh, and possibly with the judges involved as well, case management judge, trying to figure out whether there is a way for one or two or some of them or even all of them to uh, resolve the case without a trial. I, I expect in this case that's pretty unlikely to happen. But of course, as you said, it is possible uh, that one or let's say one of them uh, does decide to enter a plea or make some sort of uh, negotiated deal with the Crown Attorney. And I think that certainly would change if hypothetically that happened. That would certainly change uh, the case for all of the accused uh, in terms of, you know, what is that, uh, what is the deal? Is that testify as a witness for the Crown? That's always possible. Um, and so I, I think, you know, and, and also what are the facts if a person, if one of them is going to plead guilty, what are the facts that they are agreeing to? Do those facts um, assist or help or hurt the other four, let's say, hypothetically. So mm -hmm. it will be interesting to see if that happens. I think it's possible. But at this stage, none of them have entered a plea because that those other few steps have to happen in terms of the disclosure review and the negotiation and discussions with the Crown to figure out if that's even possible. Yeah, so lots of conversations uh, behind the scenes. Do plaintiffs ever change their accusations in court or, or before a trial? Uh, it, it does happen, and um, you know, on on some occasions where you see uh, a person, a complainant, come in and give a further statement. Again, I don't think it's going to happen here, and the reason for that is um, there's been pre some pretty extensive investigations already in this matter uh, by at least three entities, right? The NHL, Hockey Canada, and the London Police, uh, as well as a civil suit that went forward with pleading. So um, her version of events, although it's not fully public at this point. Uh, is obviously very well documented at this point. And I think for her to come forward and uh, suggest uh, a different change uh, of facts would be a very difficult position uh, to put the Crown and the police uh, into in terms of continuing with this case. So I don't think we're going to see that. I think it's been pretty extensively documented. It sounds like that's perhaps why the police have changed tactics now and have now uh, led to charging uh, these five individuals. But we will, we will see. It's always possible. Jake, if you were representing any of the players, what are the steps you would be engaged in right now? So I, I, right now, I think it's important. Uh, there is some other evidence out there that have been shown to other uh, you know, media uh, individuals in terms of uh, video clips. There's at least two video clips out there that I think are in the possession of the accused and some text messages. So I think all of the lawyers right now will be looking at gathering whatever evidence they have uh, in terms of uh, that could assist their client and uh, in, in looking at whether or not there is evidence that could suggest that either uh, their client was not involved in any of the alleged uh, sexual activity because there's supposedly eight individuals that were involved in this and only five of them were charged. So I think the assumption might be that uh, one of these charged individuals may not have been the one to actually engage in the activity that's alleged and it could have been one of the people that wasn't charged, for example. Or alternatively, looking at evidence that would suggest that the complainant actually consented, uh, either consented to the um, uh, the acts themselves, or 
perhaps gave what's called mistaken but belief, uh, mistaken uh, but honest belief in consent. In other words, by virtue of her verbal words or her actions, uh, led to the individuals believing she was in fact consenting at the time. So um, I, I, there's going to be a bit a critical analysis of the evidence on behalf of the lawyers, looking at all of that and looking at the evidence that they will assist their clients in that respect. So if you're representing EM, the young woman we only know as EM, what are you doing at this point? At this point, EM, uh, she really takes a back seat while these initial stages work, uh, work their way through the court system. Um, she'll you know, be waiting to hear from the Crown Attorney. If there is going to be a trial, she'll be subpoenaed. Uh, she'll be required to come to court and testify. But at least at the outset, until that's done or until there is a preliminary inquiry, um, her role in this is really a, a backseat one where she's just sort of waiting to hear whether she's going to be subpoenaed. The evidence has already been provided to the police. She's done what she needed to do in that respect. And uh, she'll just have to wait at least until, this, until the other sort of steps play out uh, with the other people involved. Okay, I, I have 30 seconds. So one more question for you. Will the financial settlement with Hockey Canada and agreed to by EM play a part at all in the, in the proceedings? Uh, not, not in the actual criminal trial itself. It's not going to concern itself with a financial settlement at all, um, other than uh, perhaps any suggestion that she, you know, this might have been uh, uh, around money. But that, you know, I think that that's probably going to be a difficult uh, suggestion to make. Um, but a, you know, we'll see. We'll see sort of how Hockey Canada, uh, if they go after the players, if they're ultimately convicted to for repayment of those settlement funds. So okay. that will be interesting to see as well. Jake Jessen, thank you, uh, Jake. Appreciate the time. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Roy. I really do believe in parental stewardship. I think parents are that ideological guide of their kids. Having one myself, I certainly would be very upset if a school was cutting me out. And a lot of the arguments that we tend to hear about it in terms of protecting the kid from dangerous situations at home, I don't believe those hold water because if we suspect a home is dangerous, that's why we have Children's Aid Services. Julie Malott, who is our guest, really to talk about the very disturbing experience she had at a Ontario emergency, a hospital emergency room with her daughter who had uh, very significant appendicitis, had to get her appendix out. But um, Julia Malott is also a transgender woman, and you can find her on uh, X. Hey, Elon, I got it. You can find her on X. I never want to argue with a guy who's got $246 billion. You can find her at, at Alotta Malotta, at Alotta Malotta. And she very clearly said, and this, this was just a question that I wanted to ask because she's a transgender woman. What do you think? of the initiative undertaken by Alberta Premier Danielle Smith and her transgender youth policies for the province, which will engage parents in the decision-making of their children under the age of 18 and roll back medical treatments, including surgeries, for transgender youth. So the policy all we seem to be hearing about is the opposition the policy uh, is receiving but there are people who are not opposing it. Tiffany Gillis joins us, trans woman and parent of two school-aged children, as well as vice president of an oil and gas company based in Calgary. Premier Smith consulted our guest, Tiffany Gillis, on the policies for transgender youth. Ms. Gillis, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Roy. Yeah, it's good to talk to you. Uh, I, I'm not surprised. I wasn't, wasn't surprised to start hearing more parents saying, yeah, parents should be involved in, in their children's activities. Um, so, so let me start with you. Uh, since the premier, uh, with that point, since the premier consulted with you on the policy, on, the, on parental involvement in decisions and actions very significantly affecting the children's lives. Your thoughts yeah, on that? I mean, yeah, I think like the vast majority of parents, I think, you know, are supportive and, and just want to be able to help the kids. I know that's the case with me, right, is I just want to, you know, know what they're going through at school and, you know, and be able to support them. Like I have a responsibility. People keep saying we have responsibilities and not rights as parents, but like I can't fulfill my responsibility to keep them safe and and to be there for them when they need me if I don't also have the right to know what is going on with them at school, right? Yeah, what do you say to your kids about this situation? 
about uh, the Premier's policy and, uh, and your views on this. How do you approach this with your kids? Yeah, I mean, my, my kids are still fairly young, so, you know, I haven't talked about it in detail to them about this particular change, but, like, you know, I have mentioned, you know, I always tell them that they're, they're able to come to me with anything, and, you know, I'll never judge or be upset with them for anything that that happens that, you know, they bring to me and want to talk about. Um, you know, I think that's, you know, just making sure that your kids know that you are a safe place to talk to, um, to bring up any, any sort of sensitive topic is, is all we can really do. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I've heard from parents in the last few years, and particularly in the last, say, like, let's say two years, just as the pandemic was ending and we were getting back to or trying to get back to what was a more normal way of life for us, you know, um, get up in the morning, go out, do our things, we can come back in the evening and sort of live our lives. Uh, and I, but I've heard parents say that their kids are, they feel that their kids are increasingly less willing to share with them what's happening in their lives. And when they start to dig, they, the kids will tell them, well, I was kind of told not to, not to talk to you about these things. Well, by whom? And I hesitate to say this because I can't be specific, but well, I was told in school I wasn't supposed to talk to you about these things. So, I mean, that's, I mean, that's deeply disturbing, isn't it? it? It is really disturbing to hear. And I have heard stories like that from other parents. I haven't had that happen personally. Um, but yeah, I've definitely... I've definitely heard that from other parents who, you know, thanked me for, you know, speaking up and, and trying to be, you know, be the voice of reason, I guess, for, for some people that, you know, feel like, feel like the reasonable parents aren't being heard. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I think part of that might be, you know, kids naturally, as they get into their teenage years, they will naturally, like, talk less to their parents potentially like I think teens try to keep to themselves a bit more but yeah if it's something that people are telling them to do that yeah that's totally disturbing that is why we need a policy like this Mm -hmm. what was your contribution to uh to the policy development when the premier spoke with you what did you offer to her as far as advice is concerned um you know we went through uh, kind of each line of the, the draft policy that existed at the time, um, which is fairly similar, very similar to what was released last week, um, and just sort of, you know, talked about whether there were any, you know, potential issues or, you know, minor, you know, things that could be worded better, stuff like that. Um, I think, you know, at the time as now, like, I, I was generally supportive of all of it. The the current federal health minister, Mark Holland, on Thursday said he is, quote, deeply disturbed, end quote, by the provincial plan, which includes changes in schools and sports teams as well. We'll ask you about that. And Mr. Holland said, I'm quoting him again, it's extremely dangerous to engage in this kind of thing, which I think is playing politics when you're talking about children's lives, what do you say to Mr. Holland? I, I don't think it's playing politics. I think, you know, it, it is a serious thing to go through. Like I, I struggled with gender dysphoria for, for a very long time before I got help for it. Um, and I, I know it is a serious thing to deal with. Um, but I also know that, you know, some Sometimes younger people aren't sure of who they're going to end up being. And, you know, if I to say a couple times this way, if you could promise me that this individual 13 year old who's identifying as trans will grow up to be a trans adult, then they would benefit from starting treatment earlier. The issue is that we really don't know for sure, you know, who is going to persist in their, in their trans identity 
into adulthood. Um, and there's a lot of harm in treating people who don't, you know, who turn out not to be trans and then detransition later on and just grow to regret it later on. Um, so it's not something that, you know, I think just delaying it by a couple of years, you know, to, to give more time for, for people to figure out who they really are is, is a safe and moderate option. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it must be difficult for kids to, to uh, understand what is happening with them. And, and I would have thought, and maybe we can end on this because we started with talking about parents and parental engagement. I would have thought that being able to go home and talk to your parents about how you feel and what it is you feel inside you and who you feel you are, I would have thought that that would have been the best course of action. And if there's a home where people are, you know, that is not safe for kids, that's why there are children's aid societies or children's protective agencies. They exist for that reason, right? I, I agree. Like the vast, the vast majority of parents are safe. Like if, if people want to have a discussion about whether we need more support for kids who are in abusive situations or, you know, other programs to help support them because of some lack in what we currently have, that's certainly something that can be discussed, but that's not, to me, that's not a reason not to support this policy. It's something that could be done in addition to this if, mm-hmm. if it's needed. I just want more, one more question. Do you find that our society is more accepting of trans people because of the awareness factor now? Do, are, you, are you experiencing that? Or is there, a, is there hope, hope not, but is there a pushback or reluctance? Well, I, I've found in my real life that, you know, people are wholly supportive. Like I, you know, I think Alberta and the oil industry both are things that get a bad rap from people outside of them. Um, you know, but I, I work in oil and gas. I, you know, I meet with a lot of people in the industry as, as part of my job. I travel to small towns around the province. I've never, you know, I've never felt unwelcome or threatened for being trans um, in the several years that have been out now. Um, so I think, you know, I think the vast majority of people are just live and let live. I think people rightfully have, you know, concerns about their kids rushing into something, especially without parental consent. Um, and, you know, and I think that that feeds a bit of a bit of blowback, but really, I mean, I only see that ever, you know, I get that on my Twitter account sometimes, you know, I'll find the, the rare person who really just does hate trans people, but that is not the vast majority of people, but certainly not the vast majority of people who support the bill. Yeah. I'm mostly just, you know, concerned about, about their kids. We're going to get to the issue of ethics in in parliament, in government. And I'm still de- deciding how I want to approach this. But we have two great guests. I don't want them to wait much longer. So, uh, Mr. Tom on the other side of the glass, and he's doing a great job. He's fly, he flies this plane so incredibly well. And now he's added on the responsibilities of call screening, and he's getting that down really well, Pat, as well. Just play that short clip by Mary Dawson. Section 11 is the most um, commonly requested information about. It's the, the gift uh, provision. And uh, effectively, he uh, received, uh, in, 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 the judgment, in my judgment at the time, a gift from um, somebody, a gift of a holiday on a private island. So I want you to find the other clip as well, Tom, where Mary Dawson, the former ethics commissioner in parliament, defines what friend is. And we're doing this because we, over the last couple of weeks, have been, as the rest of the country has, we've done it a little differently, is pursue the, I was just spending vacation time at Christmas and New Year with a friend, like every other Canadian, or most other Canadians, except we didn't get on a government challenger jet and fly to Jamaica 
and have one of our friends provide us with a $9,300 a night accommodation. We didn't have that. As I said earlier in the program, if somebody's given, look, because I have friends, you've heard me say, who have condos in Florida. If I ask them for the condo for a week, they're going to say, sure. And then they're going to tell me how much I have to pay. Well, Mr. Trudeau didn't have to pay anything. And I'm not suggesting his friend is going to charge him anything or wants anything from him. But if you want to appear ethical, when you've already been convicted of ethics violations twice, you have to consider what the fallout may be or what the concerns are. Is there a quid pro quo? So, um, Parliament's Ethics Committee met this week, this past week. They finally came back to work to address questions surrounding Trudeau's $9,300 per night freebie from a friend Jamaican vacation. So the interim ethics commissioner, and Duff Conacher goes mad when we talk about this, and he'll be with us later in the hour, not the commissioner, but Duff. The interim ethics commissioner, Conrad von Finkenstein, Stein, refuses to investigate the prime minister. He says it was indeed a gift from a friend, albeit a rich one. Yeah, okay then. So we have no reason to be concerned. Except that the ethical people in parliament run into trouble when they want to stay true to their ethics. How do I know this? Because I have two of them with me right now. Former Liberal members of Parliament, Michelle Simpson and Dan McTagg. Okay, so before we talk about your your situations individually, hi, how are you? Good, Roy. Hello, Michelle. Boy, you know how to start a conversation with a good, big belly laugh there, Roy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, except there was no belly laugh involved, Michelle, when your ethical behavior... And the fact that you refused to compromise it cost got you, me in trouble. Got you in trouble. Go figure. <laughs> Go figure. But yet we have an ethics committee and an ethics commissioner. <laughs> but when you're an ethical <laughs> member of parliament and you refuse to compromise your ethics, you're dumped. Effectively. Yep. Before we get before we get to your individual crises. And I'm here to provide you with therapy if you need it. Roy's therapy, which is not the best. <laughs> There's nothing to take to the bank. But uh, what do you think of, of, of Trudeau's vacation? And what do you think of von Finkenstein's the interim commissioner saying, I'm not going to investigate him because, yeah, it was a gift from a friend, albeit a rich friend, but it was a gift from a friend. Michelle, what do you make of that? Well, for, for once... They said something true. It was a gift, but how the prime minister thought it would be even close to acceptable to accepting a gift from this so-called friend when he heads a country that is in national food and housing crisis thinks that that anyone, anyone would find that acceptable, even... (laughs) You know, half of that is ridiculous. And I just, I'm about to tell Mr. Polyev, I will not be voting for that man. Which man? Trudeau or Polyev? Oh, what? Ooh, no, of course not. Mr. Polyev, you have my vote. Oh, okay. I I mean, he's, it's just gone from, oh, it, it's beyond description. Mm-hmm. At the moment I heard that number, I, I feel he's probably made up his mind, too, that he's going to leave. Well, maybe so. Uh, Mr. Polyev. Well, if he pres- doesn't go voluntarily, the, the voters will do it for him. So as I've often said, when you're being run out of town, get out in front and make it look like a parade. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. <laughs> So we hear from uh, Sebastian Kamsky, who's Polyev's press secretary, that Mr. Polyev went on a sort of a Airbnb-type vacation over Christmas and paid for it all himself. So (laughs) 
Dan, I have to take a break in a second here. Then we want to talk about your individual situations when you were ethically bound to continue to, to, to live true to your ethics and the guillotine blade went up and you just got your heads out of the way in time. Um, what do you make of uh, Mr. Trudeau's story and von Finkenstein's unwillingness to even investigate? Well, I think the story really was one of, first, you know, this is no big deal. Second of all, he had clearance from von Finkenstein, uh, interim uh, commissioner, or interim uh, overlord. <laughs> um, and uh, then we uh, we hear that, uh, no, we didn't have that. So uh, the plot thickened, and in one fell swoop, uh, the uh, uh, the would-be commissioner uh, uh, basically said it's a friend, it gets a pass. And I... I think, uh, like Michelle, uh, that uh, doesn't pass the smell test whatsoever. Uh, you know, you're going to go on a vacation, yet you can take the plane, yet you can take your security, but you damn well have to pay it yourself. And perception is reality. Who is this friend? What kind of friendship does that mean? Did, was it the same kind of friendship with uh, Yaga Khan and the island? I mean, the reality, I think, for many people is that uh, no one gets that kind of uh, consideration unless they've uh, got some kind of an angle or this scratch my back now and I might scratch yours down the road. 84 grand is a lot of money to give a friend for a free, free vacation for nothing, for no quid pro quo. I'm not suggesting there is one, but I'm also not suggesting there isn't one. So there's, there's also something with this government. Almost everybody has some kind of an angle. We're seeing that with, uh, you know, with, with the, uh, Arrive can app scam. Oh no! Please don't start yes. picking on those poor people. <laughs> if only they were subject to the same kind of rules that uh, Michelle and I were subject yeah, to. What okay. has happened to Parliament? Michelle, can you just remind us, please, of what it was that you did that was so unholy in the sight and the sound and the ethics interpretation in the Hall of the People? I simply posted my expenses, with, which were available to Canadians, by the way, but it's the way they chopped it up, and you, could, you, you really had to dig to get anything. You know, if you could go over in a category and kind of, you know, do the uh, loop-de-loo, as it were, but all I, I did was simply break it down exactly meals to every meal everything that was it it was out it was out and i was proud of it so but you you posted I for never re, i never re, i never re, i and i was actually given at the time um the whips permission to do so okay so you posted and all your expenses online every nickel every yeah. dime where you spent it and that's yeah. what got you into trouble because you weren't playing the game. And they called you in, as you told us before, they called you in to the leader's office and the whip's office, and they told you to stop that. Stop it. And, and you, your answer was, well, no, why don't you do what I do? And then they offered you a bribe. Remind us what the bribe was? A private washroom. Okay. She says with disdain. <laughs> so if you, if you had kept your constituents and fellow Canadians in the dark, you would have had a private washroom. But you didn't, so they shut you down. You weren't allowed to speak in Parliament. Yeah. Just because you were telling the, the truth. 18 months, uh, I wasn't allowed to address Parliament or to address a constituent during a question period, that type of thing. So that was it. I was verbally mummed. <clears throat> Mr. McTagg, your, your situation was a little different because they came after you, or one individual did, you told us, that had to do with your belief system, with your, with your, yeah. with your spirituality. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, on more than one occasion, it was uh, well known that if anybody had a position, that uh, you're a live and let live guy, that... Uh, you would uh, you would find yourself um, you know uh, in a, in a situation that you might not uh, enjoy and find unpleasant and uh, so the committees I was on um, I think it was at the time it was heritage and industry I was booted off those in favor of moving to the library committee. <laughs> 
Yeah, but, but why? Uh, I mean, it had something to do with your religious beliefs, did it not? It had to do with, I think, the stance that I had taken on uh, on life and on uh, on family. And it was one of the things where, hey, this is where I'm coming from, and I'm not going to vote with the government on this, and it's not a confidence matter. So I'm going to set it right now. It was one of Alan Rock's bills. That guy's uh, was full of was quite the troublemaker when it came to promoting ideas and novel, wonderful, beautiful things about how to reinvent and uh, read into law that which wasn't there, and for which uh, I had support from the Supreme Court of Canada. I mean, Antonio Lemaire at the time said, I'm not going to read into things uh, into the law that uh, Parliament has not put in there. But of course, uh, that was not the way uh, some in the Liberal Party, particularly on the left, wanted it. And so uh, I went to war with them and said, if it comes down to a bill like this, I am going to vote against it. And uh, I'm doing it because uh, my conscience is clean. And uh, if you're going to strip me, go ahead. Um, but when I found out yep. that I was on the Library Committee, I moved a motion to have it disbanded. I said, what a waste of time. You don't need an <laughs> oversight committee. So they, 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 they pulled me off That's that very quickly much. as well and put me back on, on one, one. Well, you're lucky they didn't make you the Minister of Veterans Affairs. <laughs> oh, yeah, well. <laughs> that would like Jody Wilson-Raybould, right? Uh, I yeah. did have one. Yeah, it was Jody Wilson Rabel. That's it. I mean, look, I, and I met Mary Dawson. It was actually over something uh, to do with my, yeah. uh, I guess it was my site yeah, regarding uh, gas price prediction, which I wanted to give to people. And I got a call from Mary Dawson. And she said, yeah, you might have an issue here, but the, she checked out. She has no issue here. Okay. But, uh, I got to let you know, I'm using your site, Mr. McDick. Okay, look, we're going conti- to continue this conversation on another program because... I got so enthusiastic about other things that we ran short on time for the most important things. It's just one of these things. I'm out of control. Our good friend Duff Conacher, co-founder of Democracy Watch, was on the program last weekend as we were looking forward to the Ethics Committee getting underway and reviewing Mr. Trudeau's vacation in Jamaica and finding and determining whether there was actually an ethics issue. And the interim ethics commissioner, Conrad von Finkenstein, uh, during those hearings, as Mr. Conacher knows all too well, said he wasn't going to investigate Mr. Trudeau because he's satisfied that it really was a gift from a friend, the $84,000 free stay at that palatial place in Jamaica. You know, an expensive gift, but it was a legitimate gift because they were friends and rich friends do rich stuff for each other, if I may paraphrase. The ethics commissioner, Duff Conacher, co-founder of Democracy Watch. Did I paraphrase that reasonably well? Was my explanation reasonably on point, Duff? Yes, because of the uh, huge loophole that allows for gifts of unlimited value from friends. And even if the friends have dealings with the government and, and uh, Mary Dawson, who you uh, just had a clip from an interview with her, she actually said, uh, you know, there is this exemption for gifts from friends, but if the friend has dealings with the government, I'm going to overrule it and say it's not allowed because the overall purpose of the law is to stop conflicts of interest. And that's a clear conflict of interest if the, the friend is trying to get something from the government while giving a gift to the prime minister. But the new interim ethics commissioner, handpicked in secret by the Trudeau cabinet, has said, no, I'll just enforce it as it's written uh, and not look at the overall purpose. And it doesn't matter. Uh, Secret dealings are allowed with the government because of loopholes that allow for secret lobbying. And, uh, you know, he's not even going to look into whether there might be some dealings with the uh, friend of Trudeau and just allow the gift because it comes from a friend. doesn't matter what the value is. Yeah, I, you know, I mean, I'm challenging Mr. von Finkenstein on what he said, uh, or at least the, the, you know, the, 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 the concept that you don't have to share with Canadians what Canadians are very keenly interested in as far as their prime minister's ethical dealings are concerned based on his personal history or professional history. But at the same time, I understand von Finkenstein saying to the MPs, if you want to change the legislation, change it. Yeah, the problem is that he himself, uh, as interim ethics commissioner, has created six new loopholes in the law uh, just in the past five months by the way he's interpreting the law. He's interpreting it in a different way 
than uh, anyone else has interpreted it in the past. He's allowing, the worst one is, he's allowing uh, everyone but cabinet ministers, so top government officials, junior cabinet ministers, which are called parliamentary secretaries, cabinet staff, they're all allowed to have investments of up to $60,000 in shares of companies that they make decisions about. So <laughs> they, wrong then with that. they could push the decisions in the direction they want. And that, wow. let's say they had a $50,000 investment in a company and they push it in a direction where the company's share value doubles. Then all of a sudden they've made, you know, they, they, their shares are worth $100,000. Now they've made $50,000. They profited from their own decision making. That's okay. That's ethical. That's ethical. Uh, he's also said it's fine for cabinet staff to leave cabinet and then go anywhere in the government they want or anyone else in the government to leave and, and move to another position in the government. And there can't be a conflict of interest, he says. Well, of course there can be. If you're working for one part of the government that regulates industry and then you go move to another part of government that promotes that same industry, that's a conflict. And, and uh, you could definitely have uh, uh, an appearance of a conflict of interest in making that move. But he said there's no possibility of someone moving from one part of the government to another and having any kind of conflict or moving from a cabinet minister's office uh, into any position in the government. And part of the conflict you can have is you can build relationships with other people in government and then switch and get preferential treatment in the hiring process. And that's part of the reason why there was a cooling off period from, from doing that where you have to sit out and not uh, be bidding on those kind of uh, jobs for, for a, a year or two. And so those are uh, two big loopholes he's opened and, and he's opened up others as well. Uh, along, so he's added to, there are huge loopholes in the act. There's about 10 of them, but he's added another six, just five months on the job. And that's why this guy can't be reappointed. If he's appointed to a seven-year term, he's going to just continue undermining and creating loopholes in the laws that allow for rampant conflicts of interest. So we were anticipating this Parliamentary Ethics Committee meeting and hearing evidence and speaking with the interim commissioner. Was it just a waste of time, ultimately, Duff? Well, no, actually, because it did reveal the loopholes. Um, he was asked about some of, he's cleared away eight rulings, uh, eight complaints with rulings that were done in secret. Uh, we only know about two of them because they were two complaints that Democracy Watch uh, filed. Uh, so he had, was forced to talk about that because one of the MPs asked him. And he said he, he thought it was fine for uh, Trudeau to appoint David Johnston, his family friend, to investigate uh, Trudeau. And that's set a precedent now where it's fine for the prime minister to appoint family members and friends to any position in government. Because if he can appoint him a, a family friend to investigate him, I mean, what couldn't he appoint him to? And then uh, he also, because the loopholes were so great, and they were also talking about other travel uh, uh, situations that are very questionable, what came out of it was one good thing, which was the ethics committee asked another committee, they passed a resolution to ask another committee to uh, change the rule that allows for lobbyists to send MPs on junkets with their family members and staff and associates. And, uh, and that's called sponsored travel. It's a huge loophole in the MPs ethics code. And uh, the ethics committee asked this other committee that is responsible for the MP code to change that rule and finally stop this, uh, this essentially buying of influence through buying junkets for MPs. And hopefully that will happen sooner than later. This is so, it's really disturbing. It is really oh, yeah, disturbing. Loopholes. There's 10 loopholes in the MPs code. There's 10 loopholes in the cabinet minister's law. And uh, they are huge and they allow for unethical, secretive, dishonest, activities and decision-making by everyone in cabinet, cabinet staff and all MPs. And uh, they, none of the parties have shown any interest in cleaning any of them up. And finally, maybe this one loophole, but it's just one out of 20, may finally be closed if this other committee uh, actually does something. Uh, we'll see whether they do anything. You know, somebody sent me an email the other day I've been looking for it. I can't find it right now. 
but essentially said, if we can't believe them on one thing, if we cannot believe them on one issue, doesn't that compromise everything else? If they've been proven to be unethical, any one of them, I think that's a pretty broad net there, but maybe that individual cannot be trusted. But it's a legitimate question. If you lie to me once, why would I believe you the second time? Yeah, and this is across the board. You know, MPs were reviewing their own code back in 2022, and they knew about the 10 loopholes. We've done... uh, I've appeared before that same committee four times in the last 20 years, pointed out the same 10 loopholes every time. And each time, all all members of that committee have agreed to actually add new loopholes. And that's what they did. In 2022, the party ignored the 10 huge loopholes. You know, MPs are allowed to have secret jobs. They're allowed to have secret investments. They're allowed to take part in decisions that they can profit from. And they ignored all those loopholes and added a new loophole where explicitly lobby groups are now allowed to pay for interns in MP offices. And not only is that bad in terms of lobby groups doing that, because obviously they're doing a favor, they're paying for a staff person in an MP's office, Well, and the MP would be making decisions. Uh, but even worse, it opens it up to foreign uh, government-sponsored groups in Canada you know, receiving money from a foreign government, and they can use that money to then pay for staff in MPs' offices, who would not just be interns, they'd be spies for the foreign government. Not that that's an issue in Canada these days. Yeah, and so you know. MPs ignored that totally and opened up this new loophole, and uh, it's incredible that they, they keep doing this. Every time they've reviewed the code four times in the last 20 years, Every time they have added new loopholes and ignored the 10 huge loopholes. You know, I was talking... And this is, again, what are, every party, from every party, yeah. there is not one party that takes this seriously. They all want lobbyists to be able to give them gifts and do them favors. And, so uh, I was talking, one of my guests last half hour was Michelle Simpson, who has been a guest of ours for a good number of years and part of our Beauties and the Beast panel. And Michelle told us a number of years ago... And we were getting at it. We told some of the story in the last half hour because we were talking about how members of parliament can be punished if they are, in fact, ethical. And Michelle decided that what she would do, as you know, she was going to post all her expenses online on her constituency website. So she did. Everything that she spent on meals, on travel, whatever, her expenses were posted. And she was called into the Liberal Party whip's office and told in no uncertain terms, you have to stop this. And she said, no, I'm not going to. I'm paraphrasing. No, I'm not going to. This is what I, this is what I have to do to be ethically responsible to my constituents. And they said, you cannot do that. You have to stop it. And she said, no, I'm not going to stop it. Why don't you guys do what I do? And then she was called into Ignatieff's office, who was the leader of the liberals at the time. And she was offered a bigger office, and as she told us in the last half hour, she was offered her own private washroom if she would just comply with their wishes and stop posting her expenses. And she wouldn't, so they shut her down in Parliament. She wasn't allowed to speak for 18 months. And that included not acknowledging One of her constituents, a 21-year-old Canadian soldier who died in Afghanistan, she wasn't allowed to acknowledge that, and she was not allowed to acknowledge the death of a police officer in her constituency. They just shut her down because she would not compromise her ethic stuff. Yes, and um, that spending is covered by a different set of rules, but the same issue is there, transparency and accountability. And... The reason that MPs resisted uh, for a long time having disclosure of their spending was because they get an office budget, uh, and but they often use it for party activities, and the party is supposed to be paying, not not the public, because it's partisan. It's specifically in favor of their party. Uh, the biggest one is you would have a, a meeting of your party volunteers and and pay for it and claim it was actually an MP meeting with constituents. 
And that can't be hidden if you have to disclose the receipts that show who was at the at the event and, and uh, what the purpose was. And that is now disclosed, but she was doing it before um, when they were, when all the parties were still resisting it. So, Duff, we have uh, about two and a half minutes. What have you come away with this week, uh, ultimately, about the interim ethics commissioner who wouldn't mind the job full-time, and uh, would I be wrong in suggesting that Mr. Trudeau wouldn't mind offering it full-time? Yes, and uh, that's what it seems to be headed. We don't know for sure. But uh, it has to be watched closely, and opposition parties will hopefully push back and, and not allow this guy to be reappointed even for another six months, let alone for the seven-year term position, because his record is uh, one of the worst I've ever seen. He's only been on the job five months, and he's already got one of the worst records I've seen in the last 20 years of any ethics commissioner, creating six new loopholes, burying eight complaints, and uh, generally just showing an attitude of a lapdog, not a watchdog. So what is the ethics commissioner's job? Um, let's, let's, just, let's just deal with the prime minister and cabinet ministers. What is the ethics commissioner's job as far as the PM and cabinet is concerned? Enforces the Conflict of Interest Act, which applies to them all and has uh, 10 huge loopholes in it, but also some very strong rules. And uh, he's rolled over, as I mentioned, on some of those rules, like allowing the prime minister to uh, appoint a family friend to investigate him is a clear conflict of interest, but he said it's fine. So that's a clear sign of someone who's going to roll over again and again and again and uh, allow for clearly unethical behavior. And we can't have that position. I have someone in it who's a lapdog. We need a very strong watchdog. Otherwise, uh, why have the job? Why have the position? are, Are allowed to do uh, unethical things further their own interests, their private family interests, their friends' interests, the interests of party supporters, and not uphold the public interest. So, Duff, do they, clo- do, do they close ranks regardless of which party they represent? Once you go after them and you file a case in court, do, does it, do, do MPs and, uh, and parties close ranks against you? They're not, no longer fighting each other, but they're, they've closed ranks against you. Generally, they have. Yeah, they've maintained these 10 huge loopholes in the in the MP code. The senators have done the same in the Senate code and cabinet ministers with the cabinet code. And these loopholes have existed for 20 years. And okay. they all know about them, and they've all closed ranks and turned okay. the wagons and to maintain this unethical, corrupt system. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.